Good morning, live from Los Angeles. This is Rabbi Erez Sherman and Rabbi on the Sidelines. We are here to speak about the intersection of sports and faith. This morning, we are joined by a giant in the sports world, in the college basketball world, ESPN college basketball analyst, top 50 high school recruit many years ago from out here in Los Angeles, Rolling Hills, California, four-year starter at Duke, assistant to Coach K, 1985 U.S. national team participant, practicing attorney, and as we say in this tradition, a mensch, just a great person, Jay Billis. Good morning, Jay. How you doing? I'm doing great, Rabbi. How are you? Nice to see you. I'm great. You just told me your first rabbinic podcast. I'm not sure how it uh, differs from uh, bald men on campus, but we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I don't know how it differs either, but uh, but your hair looks a lot better than ours does. Well, I actually told Seth Greenberg when he was on the show last season that we can just uh, bring you guys a couple of kippas and uh, we'll solve the problem of bald men on campus. They better be big ones to cover up my problems. <laughs> um, so we are here to talk about not just college basketball, but a deeper level of what you really speak about on the court, but most importantly, what you do off the court. And that's your book, Toughness, written a couple of years ago. You know, when I read this book, it was less about elbows in the paint and how you shoot a jump shot, and more about the mental toughness and, if you wish, I would say, aspects of faith. When I went down the uh, table of contents, the topics that you really speak about, hope, perseverance, acceptance, togetherness, to me in my tradition, that's faith, and toughness is faith. How did you come up with this idea of writing this book about called Toughness, not to just appeal to the basketball crowd, but to the American people? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting story, at least for me. Um, I was watching a game years ago, uh, and uh, an announcer, much like me, had praised a player for being tough when I thought the player was just being a, a big bully, frankly. And for some reason, it kind of motivated me to write. I wrote an article on what mm -hmm. toughness means in, in basketball. And when I wrote it, nobody had asked me to do that, none of my bosses or editors. So I, I wrote it, and I sent it in to ESPN. And said, look, if you want this, great. If you don't, no, you know, won't hurt my feelings. But I was just motivated to write it. So they packaged it together and put it on the site. And I couldn't believe the uh, response I got. It was literally from all over the world, from military leaders, business leaders, teachers, you know, college professors, you name it. And uh, it just it, then my wife, after seeing all that stuff, she said, you need to write a book on this. And uh, so I just consulted with a lot of my friends uh, in different different uh, areas of uh, of life, and for the most part, went with what what I knew and people I knew uh, to, you know, flesh out what it means. Because when I was a player and growing up, coaches talked about toughness without defining what it was. Mm -hmm. So you had to sort of uh, learn it by osmosis or what was valued by particular teachers or coaches that you had. And I just wanted to flesh it out and sort of define it. And it became the best part of the book for me was not only what I learned in writing it, but for for organizations, teams, whatever that have used it uh, or told me about using it, it, they've used it to facilitate a conversation among their group that has helped them define what's important to them. And so as a result, they've gained a deeper understanding of, of each other and uh, and what they feel is important as a as a group. And, and to me, that was the most gratifying part of it. So reading the book, obviously, you have Coach K's teachings, Coach Bob Knight, Coach Tom Izzo. But I want to 
hear a little bit more about the people that also taught you toughness off the court. And a couple of those people are your debate and your theater teacher. Here's a 6A top 50 recruit, and you're in the debate class, not on the court. Why did you do that? And what did it lead to a toughness on the court? Well, I, I took the classes. It was called forensics. So I took forensics classes, which was speech, essentially speech and debate, as you, as you mentioned, because my mom made me do it. Um, she wanted me to be able to handle myself in different situations. And, um, you know, she didn't know and never used the word comfort zone, but clearly she wanted me out of mine and didn't want me to be just an athlete. Uh, so I did a lot of different things that I, I wasn't interested in at the time, but she wanted me to do. Uh, so speech and debate was one of them. And oddly enough, I, I, I started, uh, I got to know this teacher named Billy Kramer. Uh, who was also a drama teacher. And you know, he was at my intermediate school, sixth or eighth grade. And, and coincidentally, he had, he had gotten a job at the high school that I was headed toward uh, about the time I was going to high school. So I basically had him for seven straight years. And, you know, we were nothing alike, um, but hit it off. And just he, he was as important and influential a mentor of mine uh, as anyone, any coach, any, any, anybody I've ever had in my life, frankly. Uh, so I was very grateful. He passed away many years ago, but I was very grateful to have had him as an influence on me. Toughness in the debate room, toughness on the court. And now you are full of speech. <laughs> that's your profession. And that's what you bring to us. What is your role as a storyteller, as a college basketball analyst? How do you see the consumer, the audience, when you are sitting in the Carrier Dome in uh, Cameron Indoor or wherever you're going? What's your role? You know, the audiences are different all the time. So at a game, my role is to enhance the viewing experience for the fan. So the way I look at it, when I watch football, I'm a huge football fan, but I've never played football at any decent level. So I don't really, honestly, I don't really know very much about football. So when I watch a game, uh, the game is enhanced by what the the play-by-play -play person and the analyst um, tell you is happening on the field, what they show you. And so that that's my role in basketball, because not everybody who watches a basketball game is able to tell really what's going on on the floor. And uh, and so that that's I'm trying to make it more entertaining, more informative, more fun. Uh, things like that. Uh, but I also ha have a role as a studio analyst uh, to talk about. So as a basketball analyst during a game, I'm talking about that game. Uh, in the studio, I'm talking about sort of the global landscape of, of basketball. And at times you're talking about policy, whether mm -hmm. it's NCAA policy, uh, rules that affect players, uh, they're going pro. Um, so you're trying to dig deeper into that. And, and sometimes it gets into advocacy positions. You know, you yes. have to take a, you have to take a stand and say, this rule is wrong, or this, this administrator is wrong. Uh, things like that, um, which I didn't anticipate before I got into it. So I've been lucky that I've got the background of a lawyer. I spent a lot of time, you know, I went to law school. I've been a practicing attorney for the last 28 years. Uh, so my legal training has helped me you know, navigate those waters and hopefully be able to spit things out in a coherent fashion. So you speak about the NCAA, very active on Twitter, often critical of some policies, but what about social policies in general? Like last year when we talk, talked about uh, the tensions of race in this country and players wearing uh, signs on their back, right, saying equality. How do you see your role in telling that story of the players that perhaps sometimes don't have such a voice? 
when political policy and political views intersect with sports, I feel it's perfectly appropriate to share my views and to cover it. Uh, generally, I'm not a political reporter, so I generally do not cover politics or governmental policy. Mm -hmm. But uh, when it has intersected with sports, um, I've felt free to uh, to comment on it, to cover it and to uh, to share my views. Uh, but but I think like most, you know, most things, you know, I stay in my lane uh, for the most part. Uh, but when when other areas of life veer into my lane. I deal with it and and hopefully I deal with it in a straightforward fashion uh, without uh, without apology. So one thing that Coach K I know taught you is the word together, that after every single sentence, you say together, we defend together, we play together, we eat together. And something that you do in your job as a college basketball analyst, you're not alone. You have a partner. Last year, we uh, interviewed Dan Schulman and we asked him about what it's like to work with others. And this is what he said. But for our purposes, you know, to work with Dick and Jay, first of all, you can't have two people who are more <laughs> than, than Dick and Jay. But it, but it is, it is a partnership. It, it is there, you know, to in order to make it the best, um, you have to be teammates, and, and we are teammates. And, mm -hmm. and in both cases, I respect them; they respect me. I trust them; they trust me. I won't put them in a bad spot; they won't put me in a bad spot. And you get to know each other's talking points, you get to know each other's inflection and cadence and, and all those sorts of things. But I actually keep on my computer because I. So uh, working with others, Dan's your partner in crime, Dick Vitale, partner in crime. What do you see their role in assisting you in getting your message across? Well, I, you know, I don't I don't expect anybody to assist me. But what what I'm grateful for is working with someone like Dan Shulman. Uh, who is not only a consummate professional, he's selfless in his job. Mm -hmm. uh, his, you know, he, he's basically, to use the basketball analogy, the point guard of the broadcast. And without him taking care of every conceivable leadership responsibility of a broadcast, I, I, I never get, I'll never get the ball. Um, <laughs> so it, it, it's really the broadcast is dependent upon Dan. Uh, I'm just there, and and he's a such a great setup person. So he knows before we go into the game what I think is important. He can sense he's such a great student of the game. Can sense, you know, when it's appropriate for me to jump in. But um, you know, one of the things that that I've been very proud of in my time working with Dan is is hopefully I let him do his job. That when. Um, you know, when we get down to key moments in a game, you know, one of Dan's most important responsibilities is to chronicle what's going on in the game. And the last thing I want to do is step on um, areas of, of, of his most important work. So if it's late in the game and there's a last second shot, if you it, it, when that's replayed on SportsCenter, if you ever hear my voice, I've screwed <laughs> that up completely. Um, you know, I want Dan to do that. That's his job, and he's so great at it. Um, and and so I, I hope that I'm as selfless as uh, as he is in letting him do his job as he is in, in in allowing us to do ours. So when we talk about mental toughness, you also get critique based on what you say, not just by fans on social media, but also by coaches. I'm from Syracuse originally. Now I live out in Los Angeles. Um, 
you almost went to Syracuse. That's a famous recruiting story with uh, Coach Jim Beheim. And sometimes, and we had Coach Beheim on the show also uh, last year, um, he has things to say. So here's a quick little line I want to hear about the mental toughness that it takes to deal with Coach. Way better than they were. I mean, Jay Billis knows something about basketball. I know more than he knows. So what happens when that happens? And we know Coach, and I've watched many and reviews that you say, I love the man. He's an amazing human being. Personally, I've seen the good work that he's done in my own community growing up. But when that happens, and that's obviously the Duke side behind him, the Jalen Johnson episode, what goes through your mind and how do you react with the toughness? Well, I don't react is because that that's um... – First of all, it's true. Jim knows more about basketball than I do. <laughs> uh, but he and I differed on on a, a matter, and I had to to speak out on it. Um, you know, I, I always hark back to something Bill Raffery said years ago when somebody complained uh, about something he said. And he he sort of made a joke out of it, but he was serious. He said, well, I must have missed all your thank you notes for the good stuff. <laughs> Um, sort of the idea that, you know, we're all really smart when we have something good to say about you, but if we have something less than good, then we're a bunch of idiots and that's not the way it works. Mm -hmm. And I know that, I mean, you know, Jim wasn't pleased with, with what I said and that's fine. He and I hashed it out. We had, we had uh, a bite to eat together recently. It is not, it has never been a problem. It has never been a problem. If somebody gets mad, that's fine. Um, we've got, a, we've had a long-term relationship that's not going to be affected by something he says or something I say, but if somebody says something out of frustration or all that, um, I, I don't have any problem with any of that stuff. Um, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in, in arenas where, uh, you know, you, you debate something vigorously and then you, you let it roll off your back and you're done with it. So the, none of that stuff is an issue for me. Um, I love Jim Beheim. I always have, and that's I it. always will. So mm-hmm. that, that's not a, the fact that we differed over something, you know, with regard to Jalen Johnson is that that's of zero consequence long-term. Actually, what you bring up is something that we believe in our tradition in Hebrew. We say, Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim, that these words and these words are both the words of the living God. And meaning this school of thought can say one thing and that school of thought can say the other thing. But at the end of the day, you have a meal together and you're doing something for a greater purpose. And that's what I love about what you do, how you bring the basketball world together as well. Um, When you speak about Coach K, his last year in college basketball, what aspects of faith have you seen in that program that allowed that allowed has allowed him to do what he has done for so many years? Um, So many things have been written about you coming onto that team in 1986. Basically, he had to prove himself and your team allowed himself to do that. What was the faith aspect in choosing a place like Duke and now looking back at that trajectory, seeing where they've, uh, where they've arrived? Well, I, it's an interesting question. I'm not sure I'd refer to it as faith as much as belief. Um, you know, when I, I did not have a great experience with my high school coach. So when, uh, when I was going to college, what I cared most about was who I was going to play for. So it had little to do with the school I was going to, and more the the person I was going to play for. And so I came down to four coaches that I liked the best. It was uh, uh, Coach K, Jim Beheim, Lute Olson, who was at Iowa at that time, and then a guy named Ted Owens, who was at uh, Kansas. Yeah. Uh, so that was that was my decision. And, um, and I believed in Coach K the most. Not to say that I wouldn't have loved playing for Beheim or Olson or Owens, 
but uh, I, I just there was something about Coach K that I believed in and trusted uh, based upon what you know what I had learned about him through the recruiting process. And uh, it was part of it was intellectual. The other part was my gut told me this is the right guy. And uh, and I never looked back from that. It did, didn't mean the ride was always smooth. We had turbulence from time to time, but it was um, I would not I, I, I have never second guessed the decision. And so if that if my belief in him being the right guy, you know, I guess there's an element of faith there. Uh, but but to me, it was it was evidence based. Um, you know, I, I had evidence in what I had seen in him that that told me this is the right thing to do. So you talk, keep talking about the difference between belief and faith. I'd love to uh, flesh that out a little. Uh, what do you see the difference as belief and faith? Well, I mean, I, 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 I think of faith in, in, in belief in something that has no evidentiary basis. You know, you can't point to something that you, in which you have faith and say, here, there's the evidence that that concludes my faith is correct. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, venture to say that one person's faith is greater than another, um, or, or one religion is better than another. Like I, I just don't, I don't know enough about that, and so I don't, I, I don't go there. I go with what <laughs> I believe. You know, I, I have beliefs, um, nice. and so I don't know whether, and and, and I make judgments. You know, so when people say, well, you know, you shouldn't judge other people. I don't judge other people. Uh, I don't judge their souls, but I make judgments based upon their actions mm-hmm. and uh, and based upon their statements and things like that. You know, to me, those are the my judgment is is based upon my beliefs in, the, in that regard. I want to throw one other word that you uh, end your book with, and that's hope. And I love the stories that you tell about hope, specifically uh, the doctor. And I believe was it was uh, at Duke. And he says, I'm going to introduce you to somebody. I believe her name is Sabrina Lewandowski, mm-hmm. who had a brain tumor and said, that's the toughest human being you'll ever meet. And it's because she had hope. So let's throw in that word of hope and belief. And how do those work together? Maybe tell the story of Sabrina and tell how that deals with toughness on and off the court. Well, the doctor to whom you're referring is Dr. Henry Friedman, who is yes. head of the Duke Brain Tumor Center. And uh, Henry was always uh, an inspiration to me because of his attitude. Uh, the overwhelming majority of his patients die. And he's the most hopeful, upbeat person I've ever met. Mm-hmm. And I, I honestly didn't understand it. Um, you know, the, 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 the fact that there wasn't the rate of success, but he, he didn't look at a person's death as being a failure because there were always advances and they were always getting better. And, uh, and so he was the one that sold me on the idea of hope as a function of, of, of your toughness, being your attitude, your, your, your outlook, things like that. And he told me about, he says, this woman, she's a teacher, Sabrina Lewandowski, you could lock all of your toughest football and basketball mm-hmm. players in a room with her and she'd come out. Mm-hmm. And and he told me about, you know, she she had had a, a glioblastoma. Her her survival rate, if I remember right, was nine percent. Yep. And her attitude was, I'm one of the nine percent. Mm-hmm. And and I remember her telling me a story that when she would go for treatment, um, she would pass other patients that that did not look good. And 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 she could tell that that they were not going to make it. And she she couldn't bring herself to look over there. 
at them because she was like, that is not me. Mm-hmm. And look, I, I'm not saying like my, my, my wife's father passed away from cancer. I'm not saying that toughness beats cancer. Right. What I'm saying is that without it, you can't. Yes. Because there, there are extraordinarily hopeful, tough, uh, amazingly attitudinal people that have not survived this. Mm-hmm. That, that's not the issue. The issue is without it, you can't. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you can you can fall short in the battle with it, but without it, you can't. Now, it, it, you know, if you take a sports analogy, when when Duke beat Kentucky in 1992, people go back to that shot by Christian Christian Leitner. Leitner. Yeah, a, lo- a lot of that, a lot of that was Coach K in the huddle, bringing the team together to believe they could do it. Um, now they could have believed down to their socks they could do it, and and it's still one in a thousand. Mm-hmm. But without it, it's zero. Without that belief, that collective belief that we will do this, it was zero. That that's sort of the the mindset. I love that in the combination of sports and faith and belief and hope. Just on a personal level, I had a brother that passed away in 2017. I've actually had a brain tumor for 32 out of 36 years. And I go back to Coach Beheim for a second because I brought that little clip up in jest because actually the hope and the faith that a team like Syracuse and Coach Beheim gave my own personal family the welcoming of us into any practice, into any game, into any locker room. To me, that's why I do this podcast. It's sports and faith. Or maybe I should actually now, based on your uh, definition, call it sports, belief, and hope. Because that's what sports has done. Maybe talk about the idea of hope and sports in the pandemic and you sitting in empty arenas and actually in your home studios, and what that brought to this uh, nation last year and how we're going to get back uh, during this upcoming year. Yeah, I mean, you know, going back to Dr. Henry Friedman, when he sold me on the idea of hope as part of toughness, it was the idea. He said, when you start a a season out, you have a plan for the season. Mm -hmm. But he said, you start out with hope. You know, you hope you're going to be great. You hope you go without injury. You still have a plan to implement. Um, And and I I think with with the pandemic, when when we got back from the ACC tournament in March of 2019 and everything had been canceled and we mm-hmm. we were spiraling toward shutdown, but we didn't know how long it was going to be. Uh, I kind of I kind of pushed back against some of my friends and others who were bemoaning how difficult this was going to be. You know, everybody's trying to find toilet paper. What do we do about this <laughs> now? We can't you know, we got to cancel this, all these different things. And I, I started thinking about my grandmother who had lived through the 1918 pandemic. She'd lived mm-hmm. through the Great Depression. Uh, she lived through World War II, uh, World War One, all of that. And, uh, and when I was a, a, a young boy in Southern California, uh, I remember her using uh, a tea bag over and over again. And we kind of made fun of her that, that, come on, grandma, we can afford a tea bag here. And you know, but she had lived through things that that were different. She had had a different experience. And if if our predecessors could go through all of that and still maintain a, a you know a can-do attitude, you know what, what what we had to we had to wait on Amazon to deliver toilet paper for a little while. It's you know we're, we couldn't we had to cancel vacation. We'll be okay. It's not that exactly. big of a deal. And uh, there, there are bigger things going on that we have to deal with. And 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 in my generation, I'm 57 years old. Um, you know, my brother was worried about going to Vietnam. I didn't have to go to Vietnam. I've never mm-hmm. been to war. I've never, I've never been to war. I have not been in the military. I've never lived through 
uh, a horrible um, sort of difficulty uh, with uh, fin- like with the financial crisis, things like that. I've never had to deal with that. Um, I've never had a health problem, you know, yet. I'm sure I will, but I've not had one yet. Um, but, so to me, you know, like, okay, we have to deal with something here. Are we going to drop to our knees and cry? Are we going to we going to deal with this in, in, in a, in a positive way. And, uh, and that's what I tried to, to think about. And that, that was the hope of, you know, we're n- not just hope, um, but we're going to deal, we're going to get through this. If you look mm-hmm. at all the things in the past, we've gotten through this. And the only way we're going to get through this is by being empathetic and together and by helping, uh, helping out where we can help out. I can't fix this myself but I can make things better in my own backyard. That's sort of the way, the way I looked at it. So you talk about the pandemic that way, but you also mentioned the military and you speak about your trips. I believe it was to Iraq and the troops. And you said, those are the toughest guys I've ever met. So can you tell us a little about going over to support the troops and what that looked like? And I remember uh, you sort of seeing the roles that these soldiers, men and women were playing and you couldn't believe that they were doing that. And they were grateful for what you were doing just on a court in Iraq. Yeah, it was Kuwait. So we, Kuwait, we went to Kuwait twice and, and, you know, went to Abu Dhabi, some of these other places, Bahrain. Uh, but but the military base is in Kuwait, where most, if not every soldier during Operation Iraqi Freedom went in and out of Camp Arifjan in Kuwait. So I think it was 05 and 06. Uh, I was part of a group of coaches that went over there and we coached U.S. service teams uh, that were, you know, some of them stationed in Iraq, uh, some of them, uh, you know, in other areas of the Middle East. And we were we were all blown away by the commitment of our, our men and women in uniform. And uh, there was one particular story where we'd been toured around this gigantic military base. And, you know, it was 120 degrees every day during the summer over there. And w- we noticed a bunch of different colored flags along with the American flag and certain military flags. And somebody had asked one of the one of the soldiers touring us around. Really? And we said, what, what, what are those flags? What do they mean? And he said, they're, they're heat orders. So uh, certain, certain temperatures, you're allowed only 10 minutes on, 50 minutes off for work outside. And, uh, and one of the coaches asked, well, how do you get your work done? Only 10 minutes on, 50 minutes off. And, and very matter-of-factly, the soldier said, well, with all due respect, sir, we don't really heed those, heat, the, those particular orders because we've got brothers and sisters that are dying up in Iraq and they don't get 50 minutes off. And, you know, you started thinking about how profound that is, um, that their job is to make mission and they're not going to leave their, their uh, fellow soldiers at a deficit because, you know, that, that, you know, they, they may get some sort of heat stroke or whatever it would be. And, and that, that is no joke over there. Right. That heat is ridiculous. I mean, you know, you have to wear long sleeve shirts and all that stuff because as you perspire, it basically fries you. Um, and, you know, you're, the amount of water they had to drink, I mean, it was really something else. But, you know, I mentioned before that I'd never been through, you know, mm-hmm. been through war, or, uh, been in the military. So, you know, it's one thing to talk about commitment. You know, like, look at the commitment I've made to my basketball team. You know, that, that's, <laughs> that's not commitment. Um, what soldiers do, what first responders do, mm-hmm. uh, that's commitment. Uh, it, it is not commitment to, uh, you know, to say, Hey, look, I'm all in on this basketball season. 
that that doesn't that's not going to carry the day. But uh, but to your point, like the the fact that we had those soldiers saying thank you to us for coming yes. over there was embarrassing. Frankly, mm. it, it, we we were embarrassed um, because we 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 didn't think we could do enough for them. Uh, that that was the feeling. Goals, destinations. Coach K always talks about, you know, I, I believe in the beginning of the season, he says, what's your goal? And people say, I'm going to win a national championship. I'm going to win the player of the year, et cetera. He said, no, that's a destination. What's your goal? How does Coach K set up that difference and what can it mean to us? Well, I think it's more an issue of concentrating on what's important that day. Uh, so you, you um, that I think the point he was making is that you know, the national championship as a goal is not going to sustain them day to day into doing what was right that day, what was best for them that day. And to me, I've always used the analogy of a ladder that uh, that my dad kind of taught me not, you know, not knowing he was teaching me anything. He was just he was just pissed at me. That's what I was going to um, ask you next about your dad. Yeah, great. So when my when my uh, I used to work for my dad during the summer mm -hmm. and when I was working on a construction project, uh, you know, my job was to get some of the material or get all the materials from the ground floor to the, the roof. And uh, and so I figured I'd carry twice as much stuff on each trip. I'd cut the number of trips mm -hmm. in half that way and I didn't have to do this this grunt job uh, uh, that I hated. And so uh, I took a spill. I was overloaded and not paying attention to what was important. And I took a spill and I was lucky I didn't get hurt. And my dad made the point to me that you can't get to the top of that ladder in one step, but you can get to the bottom in one step, concentrate mm -hmm. on what you're doing. And so similar to the, you know, Coach K talking to, to the team about, you know, look, we can have goals about winning the ACC or doing this or doing that. But but really, those are our destinations. Our goal has to be to get better and closer as a team every day. If that's our goal, we'll reach our destination, whatever that is. And we're worthy of, of all those. We're worthy of reaching all those different destinations. You know, when you think about a ladder, your destination is the top of the ladder. But what good does it do you on each rung to think about the top of the ladder? You have to be fully concentrated on each rung of the ladder or pretty soon your destination is going to be flat on your back on the bottom of the ladder. And uh, and it, it's it sounds really simple, but um, it's easy to get distracted by what you have ahead or other things going on in your life when all that really matters is what you're doing right now. Like I'm not a through my father. I'm not a believer in multitasking. Mm -hmm. I can do a lot of different things during a day, but I can only do one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. And and so he did not he, he concentrated on what he was doing right then. And then when it was over, he moved on to the next thing. And he kind of used to get on me about that. He, he after a game or something, he would say, was something bothering you? And I'd say, yeah, you know, I got a lot going on. I got a test. I got this or whatever. He goes, look, when you're playing basketball, you can't do anything about the test. And he said, so concentrate on the game. You get to you've devoted your time to it, like devote your whole being to it. When it's over, then don't think about the game anymore and move on to concentrating on the test. Don't think about basketball in school. Don't think about, you know, when you go out with your girlfriend, you devote that amount of time to it. So sit and watch the movie and enjoy yourself. Um, but when it's over, move on to the next thing. And that's sort of, I think it's all part and parcel of the same, that are you able to concentrate on what's in front of you to the exclusion of everything else? 
And if you can't do that, you're cheating yourself out of that experience, whether it's your family time, work, whatever. You know, I've never brought work home with me. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't mean I don't I don't do things at home, mm-hmm. but I don't bring work home with me, if that makes any sense. So Absolutely. when I sit down when I sit down for dinner with my wife or my kids, whatever, my kids are gone now, but I'm I'm all in on that. And then when it's time to work, then I then I work. I'm not sure if you went to rabbinical school or not, but you're providing like unbelievable sermons for our community here this, uh, this oh, morning. <laughs> Especially, yeah. Especially the, the collection Latin. plate comes out. No, we don't do that. We just do online donations now. We're all good. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the latter um, image is something that we're going to read in the Old Testament in a couple of weeks about Jacob climbing up and down and which way the ladder is going. It's a beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, your toughness idea, sometimes being too tough is not good, meaning playing through injuries, right? What is that boundary between toughness and I guess I would use the word stupidity? Well, it, it's it's understanding what's important, that um, it, it's one thing to play through pain. It's another thing to play through injury. And uh, I think I think I was kind of stupid um, with how I handled a, a knee injury in the past. I wanted so badly to play for the U.S. national team. I compromised my my health and uh, and I paid a pretty big price for it. But, um, you know, just it, there's a big difference between uh being tough and being smart about it um you know like for me when it took me a while growing up when i went to the doctor you know to to frankly be honest about everything that was going on with me you know you felt maybe felt embarrassed or you didn't want to talk you know didn't want to talk about hey man this is really this is more painful than you're telling me this should be things like that um when i was in a doctor's office what i wanted most was to get the hell out of there but you can't, you know, you, your doctor can't help you if you don't give him or her all the information. And uh, and so I, I've, I've since become a lot more forthcoming um, because that they're they're there to help you. And um, and so my decision making changed a lot when I let go of of my physical and mental health is not related to how tough I am as a person. In fact, the admitting that I have uh, vulnerability is a, is a sign of toughness. It's not, it's not weakness. Uh, It's, it's strength to be able to, to admit that and to address it. Um, it, It's not weakness. So this is the last season for coach K uh, hall of famer, probably the best coach uh, out there perhaps of all times. Um, This is a quick clip from his first practice just a couple of weeks ago. And we'll talk about coach K in just one moment about an hour right now to really be thinking a lot of movement. All right. But we need this and in order to, to do this uh, uh, in talking, that means we're going to do it together. You know, we're at a good spot right now, but you're all going to get better and you only get better by not having a ceiling put on you. How can I help a teammate today? How can What's your thoughts on the last season of Coach K and the impact that that will have on the college basketball landscape going forward as him, as Coach Williams, who knows about Coach Beheim, as the next generation comes up? What's that going to look like for us? Well, it's the natural order of things. I mean, I'm sure at one time when Henry Iba and uh, and John Wooden and Ray Meyer and others, uh, Al McGuire, left the game, mm. we wondered what would happen to the game. 
and and it seems to always get better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know who will take the mantle from Coach K and carry it forward, whether it's Jay Wright or uh, Tony Bennett or Tom Izzo. There, there are so many wonderful younger coaches. Um, it, it's it's normal to feel a little bit unsettled uh, when you don't know the right answer right. Uh, to, to how things are going to be in the future. But that that's part of what makes the game beautiful. Um, so, I, I mean, I can't imagine a game, the game without Coach K in it. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to find out what it's like pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what what I've chosen to do, Rabbi, is just concentrate on, one, how lucky I've been personally sure. that I've had Coach K in my life since I was 17 years old, and he's still mm-hmm. coaching where I played, and I'm going to be 58 in December. And then I, I, I feel really lucky that we've got one final year with him, knowing that it's his last year, that he could have pulled the trigger on on retirement just like Roy Williams did and walked right. and he w- we would have had you know a week to celebrate his career but uh, now we've got a year and right. uh, look he's going to get a lot of rocking chairs and interesting gifts and all that stuff but but overall it's going to be a hell of a lot of fun uh, to watch him in his final season knowing that uh, that we've had this sort of good fortune for 41 or, or more years whatever it is now you can't even count it's been so many years that's true that's true so uh one question from the audience and then a uh, wrap-up question uh arizona actually uh uh isaac greenberg a united states veteran who's also an arizona fan living in florida um basically the ncaa sort of dragged its feet with the uh, arizona investigation um uh, what's your thought on sort of bringing back the glory days of lute olson era well, Tommy like Lloyd will do that. I mean, Sean Miller, uh, I think, is a great coach. And uh, and look, I, I, I think all that stuff is horribly unfortunate. Uh, I don't think the FBI and the federal government should have, you know, the U.S. Attorney's Office should have been in any of that stuff uh, from the beginning. Because if they really want to find corruption, all they have to do is look to, to football and basketball. They could find it anywhere they look. Mm-hmm. But to me, they're bigger fish to fry out there. Um uh, because it's just business. Uh, and now a lot of this is coming above board anyway with NIL, so we don't have to worry yeah. about it. But Tommy Lloyd is, a, I think, an outstanding coach. And, uh, and I'm glad he's getting this opportunity because, uh, you know, he, he's, he's more of a West Coast guy. Uh, so I think he fits in very well at Arizona. His recruiting, I think, will be off the charts. I just hope what I'm, what I'm most hopeful of as a, as a big believer in Arizona, I mean, I'm a, I was a huge Lute Olson fan and all that, um, that the NCAA just leaves them alone. Um, I think the NCAA has shown they can't handle this stuff. So just take a step back and, and don't, don't hammer programs going forward. Uh, and I'm a little bit concerned that they, they will not <laughs> do what I think they should do and continue to make things worse. But, but I'm hopeful that, uh, that they'll see the light and not do something stupid. So I'm sitting uh, just a mile away here at Sinai Temple from Pauley Pavilion, UCLA, definitely high on the charts. Uh, what's your predictions for our Los Angeles community here and UCLA with Mick Cronin? I think UCLA is going to be one of the, the the top two or three teams in the country all year long, along with Gonzaga, Purdue, you know, Villanova will be up there, Kansas, some other teams. Um, but to have everybody back, Mm-hmm. Uh, and then add some new pieces. You know, Mick Cronin has done a remarkable job in a very short time period at UCLA. And, you know, when, when he first arrived in Westwood, I grew up around there, as you know. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a, it's an interesting and difficult place. 
Yes. And the first thing you thought of was, is Mick, like Mick can coach, I think can coach anywhere. Um, but you're always concerned about, is that the right fit? And, and he's proven not only is the right fit, uh, uh, he's taken it to a, a different level. Uh, so I'm, I'm very happy for Mick, who is a great coach and a great guy. And, uh, and I'm thrilled for UCLA because it's a, the brand name is important for, for the sport. It, it's like the Yankees not being good. You have to have, you have, to have the Yankees good. <laughs> Actually, there's been some empty poly pavilions this year, and I'm excited to uh, bring my family and my community there. Um, so the last question, toughness again, toughness by Jay Billis, New York Times bestseller, an amazing book, perhaps not about faith, but definitely about belief. What's your message to uh, the young people about the importance of sports and the importance of believing in themselves, especially after this pandemic? This idea that uh, I just read an article this morning, the pandemic after the pandemic is about mental health. How can we really train ourselves to move forward, to get to a goal and not a destination and to know that we're going to be okay tomorrow? Well, that's a great question. I mean, to me, sports uh, are are really important vehicles for relationships. Mm. And, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to younger coaches, not just uh, younger college coaches, but especially high school coaches and AAU coaches about the idea that this is supposed to be fun. And we spend a lot of time lecturing young people about only five percent of of athletes ever go on to play in college or be professionals and all that well if we really believe that then it's incumbent upon us to make their participation in sports a great experience and what they will you know at my advanced age what i know from participating is the most important thing to me now about my participation is the quality of relationship i had with my teammates my coaches uh, you know, the other parents that were involved, um, that, that's what sticks with you is those, you know, sort of that, that relationship side, the experiences you had, not, not your one loss record or anything like that. And, uh, and so I, I think it's important for, for people at every level, this is supposed to be a positive experience. So get off the player's backs, <laughs> let them enjoy the experience and help facilitate them having a positive experience with their teammates and, and their coaches um, because that, that's what, that's what leads to the best mental health outcomes mm-hmm. is, uh, is, is positive interaction. That doesn't mean you can't have high expectations. You can't be demanding in, in performance and, uh, behavior and, uh, expectations, but you, you, you'd better be demanding without being demeaning because demeaning mm-hmm. leaves scars and, and the players will remember being demeaned forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll also remember being uplifted. And so you have to decide on which side of that coin do you want to, you want to be remembered. I think it's the same model that we do here in the, uh, religion world and it's creating sacred relationships through sacred community. It is a pleasure to have Jay Billis here on rabbi on the sidelines. If you're uh, hopefully college game day, will come to the Bruin campus. We're right down the, uh, down the block and hopefully you'll visit our community as well. Jay Billis, ESPN college analyst, Duke alum, 1985, U.S. national team member, and just an amazing, amazing mentor and role model for all of us here in this great country, United States of America. Jay, thank you for being with us. Have a great day. Thank you, Rabbi.